All right, well, thank you for that. Good morning. Hey, I'm looking forward to uh, what the Lord has for us today. I'm very excited that uh, the Lord has allowed for me to speak this morning. He said, Pastor is out. Pastor is out, and uh, he asked if I would be able to fill in here. And so that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be right back in the series that we've been in, and uh, we're just going to have a great time in God's Word today. Let me tell you a little bit about who I am, because uh, I've seen a lot of you around, but maybe uh, you have not got the chance to meet me, or uh, me not have the chance to meet you. So my name is Levi, Levi Ralston, and my wife is over here in the green, and uh, we have a little daughter, and she is uh, one year old, and she is the love of my life. I love her. Uh, we moved uh, here from southern Indiana. I was born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, and... Uh, the Lord uh, took me from there out to California. I spent four years in Bible college. That's where I met Pastor and uh, came back to southern Indiana. I worked at a, a camp down there for a while until the Lord put on my heart to church plant. And so as the Lord did that, he intercrossed uh, my path with pastors, and uh, that's how we moved down here in February. And so our goal, our trajectory is that we would plant a church uh, probably within the next year or as the Lord plans, somewhere here in the Jacksonville area. And we're spending this time that we're here at River City to do some intern, to learn, to get a hold of uh, what it means to be a pastor. And you guys are helping us do that. So if I haven't met you yet, my name is Levi and I would love to meet you after the service. Well, we're here to he hear God's word. So let's open up our Bibles to Nahum, Nahum chapter number one. Nahum chapter number one. We're going to continue in the series that we have been in uh, for the last six weeks in a series of the Minor Prophets. That's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. It end caps the Old Testament with 12 books called the Minor Prophets. And as you have heard week after week, minor does not mean that their message is a lesser message. It simply means that the number of words in the book are smaller than the major prophets. So there's the major prophets, the minor prophets. We're looking at the minor prophets. We have officially gone through half, gone through six of the minor prophets, and today we'll be on number seven. That's the book of Nahum. That's where we're at. Every single one of these books, we've talked message, we've talked about the preacher himself, we've talked about prophecy, but every time we open up one of these books... Every time we hear a message from God in this series, it has all been pointing us right back to God, his truths, his characteristics. That's the exact same thing we're going to do this morning in the book of Nahum. Hopefully you're there, found your place there in the back of the Old Testament. And so if you would open up to chapter number one, we'll be reading a couple of verses in chapter number one. The time that this book was written the people of Nineveh. Now that should spark a memory uh, in your mind that, hey, you know, we just got through the book of Jonah, not last week, but the week before. Jonah, the entire book of Jonah was a prophet preaching to the city of Nineveh. Well, Nineveh comes back on the scene. You say, why do you bring Nineveh back up? Well, because a hundred years later, or a hundred plus, Nineveh is back on the scene in the book of is written to the Assyrians, which was in, and specifically to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was a huge nation that was feared. 
They were feared because of their brutality. They were feared because of their power. They were feared because they were overtaking cities one by one. And if you remember correctly, they had just overtaken the northern tribe called Israel. The northern tribe of Israel was just overtaken. Assyria has come in. They have, uh, they have defeated everyone. They've taken them captive. And they're pillaging cities. And they're on their way now down to the southern kingdom of Judah. In about 701 B.C., we find that the Assyrians and the Ninevites come. They, they start to take out, in their mind, Judah. They start to come in 14 cities that were fortified. 14 of the major cities in Judah have just been defeated. They've just been overtaken, and now they're on their way to, to take care of Jerusalem and really capture the entire nation there of Judah, the tribe of Judah. But what happens in that story, if you remember correctly, the Assyrians come to take over the capital to completely uh, disband Judah, but in one night, the angel of the Lord comes in, and as the Assyrians have surrounded the city, the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 of the Assyrians in one night, obviously crippling their military. The king at that time runs with a tail tucked between his legs back to Assyria, and guess where he goes? You guessed it, to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. And now we're in this time period where the northern tribe of Israel has already been captured by the Assyrians. The southern tribe, they've attempted to and now we're in this period where Assyria is powerful, they're feared, but there's a prophecy coming of their destruction. That's where we find ourselves today. This part of this series, this book, is written to really the Ninevites and the Assyrians, but also it's written to Judah. Remember, Judah had just, they've been taken over, 14 cities have just been destroyed, they tried to take the capital they were unsuccessful, and so Judah now is, is fearful. They're, they're fearing the Assyrians, and what are they going to do? Are they going to come back? Are they going uh, to win this time? Are they going to overtake us? And this book is written to Judah, saying, hey, I have a prophecy about Nineveh and about the Assyrians. They say, well, what's the prophecy about? Well, the prophecy, really, if you read the, the three chapters long, the book speaks about the destruction the downfall and the death of the Assyrians and specifically the city of Nineveh. You see, the, the Ninevites were known across the country as bring, being unbelievably brutal to their enemies. And I'm not just coming and kill people from the cities that they were trying to overtake. No, they would come in and they would take people captive. They would torture them. And, and, and I, I wouldn't even be able to express what they would do. But the things that they would do, they would set up displays and, of their power out of, among the cities so that other people that would come by would see and say, wow, we're not even going to mess with the Ninevites. Utterly just brutal to the people, the women, the children. And they were known for this. But Nahum comes along with this book. You know, the name Nahum means comfort. But if you read this book, you won't find much comfort at all. It's the prophecy of all the destruction that's going to come. So why was Nahum's name mean comfort? Well, here's why. Judah, scared, is going to hear this prophecy of God coming in once again to rescue them. 
to take care of their enemy, to overpower the person that was oppressing them, God comes in with this book of, listen, you've just been attacked. I know that your cities have been uh, destroyed, 14 of your strong cities, but God is going to come in and he's going to take care of you. Listen, there is hope in this book. We're going to read some of it today. I want you to see this, that this, this book really doesn't have a lot of yay. If you read the story of Jonah, you know, there's, there's a part at the beginning where Jonah is, is, uh, is called of God. He's going to be a preacher. He says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. There's the, okay, there's the call. And Jonah goes and he runs away from God and there's kind of the destruction, the sad, the oh no. But at the end of the book, he goes back to Nineveh and they repent. And there's the yay of the book. There's not really a yay in this book. It's hard. It's a prophecy of God's judgment. Judgment on sin. So in this book, this is not out of character for God to bring judgment. Do you realize that God tells us his character he tells us who he is. He tells you that he wants you to know him. And he says, let me tell you a little bit about myself. He says that I am a judge and I will administer judgment because I'm a good judge. If you were to read Hebrews chapter number 10, verse 30 and 31, it says this. It says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a judge, listen, and he will bring judgment, and this time he's bringing it to the Assyrians. This is not out of character for God to bring judgment. We're going to talk about that today. So judgment, God's fury, it is all over this book. If you open up the book and look at just a couple of things, a couple of phrases, if you were to read through this book, here's some phrases that come out that show the anger of, that God has towards the sins of the Assyrians. He says some things like this, for you are vile. More than once he says, behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Listen, this is not a pretty message for Nineveh, but this is the actions of a holy and a righteous judge. God is well within his power to do this, and it's right for him to bring this judgment on the Assyrians because of their sin against him. So let's look at this. I want you to see this. Open up your Bibles, and we're, we're going to start reading in chapter number 1. We'll read the first couple of verses here, verses 1 through 7. The Bible says, The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Ecloshite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has said his Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. 
and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt, and the earth and he- the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Look at verse 7, though. It says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. A message of judgment with a little glimmer of hope. In these verses here, you see the, the wrath, the anger, the, the fury that God has against this nation. And it's going to come. It's a prophecy. A nation that at one time had repented, had turned back to God. A nation that had, had fallen on their face saying, God, you are right. God, you are just. God, you are holy. And we turn away from our sin and we come back to you. And 100 plus years later, they find themselves in the middle of God's judgment. So I want to speak to this today. Payday, someday. Payday, someday. Montgomery Meigs was a Union officer during the Civil War who had once served under Robert E. Lee. But after Lee joined the Confederate side, Meigs considered him to be a traitor. In 1864, Meigs got his chance to exact revenge Meigs proposed to the President Lincoln's Secretary of War that a portion of Lee's estate in Arlington, Virginia, be appropriated and converted into a permanent national military cemetery. Well, this was approved. But Meigs had another purpose for burying the dead on Lee's former property. He wanted to make it make sure that it was impossible for the estate to be returned back to Lee after the war was over. So to further this this objective, Meeks created a mass grave in the garden of Lee's wife and buried more than 2,000 identified soldiers there. He also built up a sarcophagus in honor of them. After this, he knew that it would be politically impossible after the war to move them. Well, the war ends, and as Meeks had anticipated... The Confederates surrendered, and Lee and his wife tried to regain the property. It was to no avail. Mary Lee even asked, hey, what if, what if, we, moved, what if we moved the graves and, and we, we took them somewhere else? Could we still get back the property? The answer was no. Lee and Mary, Lee, the Lees never got their property back, not in their lifetime. And although, although General Lee probably felt some of this payback from Miggs, as, as Miggs thought he was a traitor of war and this is what you deserve, and I'm going to get some payback on you. You're going to try to get your estate back? Well, I'm going to make it so you can't. A little bit of payback. You know what? He probably felt some. Can I tell you this? Ultimately, there's coming a day when there will be a payday someday. And not just for a property of land. Not just for something that you own that you might lose, but really a property of your life, your soul. There will be a payday someday. As dedicated as this man was to getting payback on Lee, God is more accurate and more concerned with his judgment of sin than this soldier ever could be at paying back General Lee. God will bring judgment and there will be a payday someday. So what about this judgment? 
What about this judgment that's going to happen? What about this payday? Well, I, I see really three fundamental issues, fundamental truths about this payday. So I want to look at those today with, the, with you this morning, if I could. Number one, number one, payday is a judge will never overlook sin. A righteous judge will never overlook sin. Let's look at these verses here for a minute if we could. Uh, verses number, let's start in verse number two. It says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges and the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will, will take vengeance on his adversaries. If you're noticing, noticing some of the words in here, the, the, the vigor that God has about his judgment, look at some of the words jealous, avenges, furious, vengeance, adversaries, wrath, anger, wicked. All these things are describing the, the vehemency of God's judgment that's coming down on these sinners. As we continue in verse number three, it says, the Lord is slow to anger, power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. Will not at all acquit the wicked. Do you know what that word acquit means? The word acquit means to leave unpunished. To leave unpunished. God says, when I am a judge, when I bring judgment, when I come down on sin that I, that I so, that so passionately am against, he says, when I come down and bring judgment, there will be no leaving aside somebody that is unpunished. I will not at all acquit the wicked. God is bringing judgment for sin. You say, why would he be so serious? Because sin is that grievous to him. He is a holy, a perfect, and a righteous God, and his standard is perfect, and yet when we sin, we laugh and spit in the face of God, and God as a good judge has to bring judgment. Can I tell you this? God is a good judge, a righteous judge. You know, you and I would expect a judge in our courts today to, or to, to bring judgment that is accurate for a crime. Somebody that, that has been robbed or somebody that's been scammed out of money. We would expect that judge to say, hey, listen, that was wrong and here's what, what's going to happen. Here's the consequence of that sin. Or, or the judge that would come and say, hey, listen, this murderer has uh, been convicted of this crime and we're going to give him the appropriate consequence. We would expect that from a judge. We would say that's a good judge. But if a judge were to just let someone go for a crime they've been clearly convicted of, we would say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? That's crooked. That's wrong. And yet when we look at God and say, God, why do you bring judgment on us? We have, we have made the sin. We've been convicted. And for God to be a good, ju good judge, he has to bring judgment. A righteous judge will never overlook sin. This is exactly what God does with us. You can be sure that God will never let you get away with one single sin. Say, that's pretty, that's pretty strong, Levi. That's, that's pretty passionate to say that God will never let you get away with one sin. But listen, it's true because God is a righteous judge. He does not overlook sin. He will not let sin go. He is a good judge. You see, what you may be asking yourself, well, what is this thing? What is, what is sin? What, what, is, what is this thing that God will say? about that he won't let go that he brings judgment on well sin is anything that you or i do that breaks god's law and that's not perfect 
You see, the law was given to you and me. It was written in the Old Testament for us to, to realize that we could never, ever keep the law. Do you see the purpose of the law? It was not given to you so you could keep it and say, okay, here's the commandments that God gave, and I'm going to try to keep every single one of them to the best of my ability. No, it was given to you so you could see, ah, look at all these rules. I could never measure up to God's standard. You know, God wants you to see that today. That the standard that he has set is perfection. And nobody can measure up. You say, Levi, if, if, if the standard is perfection and no one could ever measure up, then what are we doing here? Well, God wants you to realize your state with him. God wants you to realize that, hey, I've sinned and I am not perfect and I do deserve judgment. And every single one of my sins, God's not going to overlook. And I do have to give an answer for that. God is a righteous judge and he won't overlook sin. I remember in college, um, in each one of your classes, we were given a percentage of time that you could miss. It was 15%. However long your class met for the entire semester, you had 15% where you could miss. You could miss because you were studying for another class. You could miss because you wanted to sleep in. You could miss because IHOP was having all-you-can-eat pancakes and you want to go get some pancakes. You say, did you do that? Well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> you could miss for any reason that you wanted to. Here was the rule. Once that 15% was up, you failed the class. Well, knowing me, I was riding the edge a little bit. I had, I had gone off a couple times, slept in a couple times, and I knew about where I was to the edge. And I walk into class one day, and my name's not on the roster. I thought, oh no, I thought I had measured exactly to the minute. minutes left, I'm going to go talk to the dean. So I walk up to the dean of academics office, and I walk in and say, hey, listen, here's what's going on. I figured out I am only 0.07% over. That's it, 0.07%, not even 1%, not 0.07. I said, that's all I'm over. He says, okay, well, let me see what you're getting in the class. He pulls up my grades. I'm getting a 100% in the entire class. Pulls up my grades, he says, so you're getting 100. I said, is there any way you could just kind of overlook this? Is there any way you could give me like one more chance? Like if I'm not late anymore for the rest of the semester, can I just stay in the class? And he looks up from his computer and he says this. He says, well, I see that you're a senior. It's the fall semester. And I'm glad that they offer this class next semester. I walked out of his office. The next semester I signed up for that class. I went to the class every day. And I did end up passing. Praise the Lord. But sitting in the office, I thought, it's 0.07%. Come on, I've already got 100% in the class. Would you just? And he would not. Friend, I'm telling you this. More than just a class, more than a percentage of time missed, God is passionate about bringing accurate judgment to sin, and he will not overlook sin, no matter what. No matter how good you think you've been, no matter how close you are to the standard, God cannot overlook sin, because if he does just once, he's no longer a righteous judge. So for your sake, he can't overlook sin. 
Can I tell you what? God has a limit. Not a percentage, but God has a limit. He has that law. That law is perfect. If you think, well, you know what? I think I've done pretty well. God has given us ten commandments. And there's ten commandments, but let me just ask you about three of them real fast. He says that you should not lie. You should not covet. You should not steal. How are you doing so far? Three of the Ten Commandments. If you read James, he says that if you break one of the laws, then you are guilty of all. Friend, God loves you, but he will not sacrifice being a good judge to overlook your sin. And he looks at this Nineveh and says, you have, you have been mean, you have attacked my people, you have sinned, you have gone against me, you've repented, but yet... You've turned back your ways so quickly, a hundred years, and now you're back to sin. He says, I cannot overlook that. So let me ask you this. Have you had a wrong view of God? Have you been looking at the judgment of God and saying, you know what? I I thought God would just kind of be a little more lenient. I thought I would be able to get to heaven and say, well, here's my good deeds and here's my bad deeds. And and, and do they kind of weigh out? No, no, no. Listen, if you have had a wrong view of the judge of God, I hope it's corrected today because God cannot overlook sin. Everything is hidden from him. He sees all. He's omnipresent, omniscient. Everything you do, hidden in secret, in the dark, on your phone, when no one's around, and your thoughts, your heads, your relationships, everything is seen to him, and he cannot overlook it. You say, wow, Levi, this is not encouraging. Oh, no, 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 friend. This is extremely encouraging. You say, how could this be encouraging? I'll tell you this. That if you're saved here today, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, all of your sins have been placed on Jesus Christ. God did not say Jesus Christ is going to pay for the majority of your sin, and then you will only have to pay for one of your sins. No, no, no. He said every single sin, if you've trusted Christ, is placed on him. And so he does not overlook one single sin. Friend, you don't have to pay for one of your sins if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That is encouraging. A righteous judge does not overlook sin. Payday is coming someday. Number one, a righteous judge doesn't overlook sin. But number two, payday is coming someday because there is no escape from God's judgment. There is no escape from God's judgment. Read with me in the next couple of verses. We'll start at the last part of verse three. It says, the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea. And makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. You know Bashan and Carmel, these are two cities located in Egypt that were extremely well resourced. They had all the resources you can imagine. And the way that they were positioned, they were positioned so that they were a fortified city, strong. And not only that, they had the help of Egypt behind them. These were cities that were massive in their resources. He says these cities mean nothing. And he says, in the next couple of verses, he says, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation and endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Look at the, look at the in these verses, what God is saying, he says, it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what you do. There is no escape from my judgment. He says, you can go to the rivers. 
I'll dry those up. You can go to the sea, and all the power that the sea has, I'll dry that up. You go to the mountains, I'll make them quake. You go to the hills, they'll melt. I throw down the rocks, I bring fire. He goes on in the verses, he says, he says, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're at, all of the earth heaves in my presence. Friend, no matter what you do, you cannot escape God's judgment. There's no place you could go. There's no thing you could do. There's no, there's no defense you could build up where you could be safe from God's judgment. That's just not true. Any efforts to avoid it or fight it will fail. I want you to see in verse 6 with me just for a second. There's, there's a certain word that he uses here. Verse number 6, it says, Who can stand before his indignation? The word indignation is not used so much in today's vocabulary, but let me explain what it means. It means that there is a curse because of a wrongdoing. And here's what God says. That law that I gave you, friend, you have broken it. And because you have broken it, there is a curse there's judgment coming. And he says, who can escape it? Could you or you, if you went here or went there, if you did this or prevented this, who can escape it? And his point is that nobody can escape it. Not a single person. Definitely not us. We can't avoid it. I think that sometimes we say, you know what? The judgment that's coming, I think I should, I should get kind of a pass. I think I should be able to be skirted around a little bit. I think I should be, be let go because of maybe, maybe because of how I was raised. You know, I, did, I, I wasn't raised well. Or because of how I was raised, I think I will be able to, to, to have a pass. Not true. I think because I've been a good person, I think maybe the Lord will let me escape a little bit. Not true. Well, I've tried to do good. Not true. Well, I've been to church. Not good enough. I've, I've read my Bible before. That's not good enough, friend. There is no escape from the judgment of God. It's very clear and very evident here. I remember um, when I was just a little tyke, just a little guy. I was in grade school. must have been first grade. Um, I have older brothers, and uh, I'm the baby of six. So I got to see and observe a lot. And uh, one, one day, my brothers were going back and forth with this prank where as somebody is walking, if you kick the right foot as they're walking, it'll go behind the other one, and it'll trip them up. Well, listen, I've gotten plenty of experience from my brothers doing it to me, and I thought, that's it. I'm the baby. I'm always the one getting picked on. I'm going to try this prank on somebody else. So I'll go to school, and there's my friend Christian, and he's walking down the hall, and uh, school had just let out, and I thought, here's my opportunity. He doesn't know what's coming. It's going to be hilarious. Everyone's around can see. So I run up behind him, and you're supposed to gently kick the foot over. Well, I wasn't so gentle. So I go to kick the foot, but it was the wrong foot. I, I, I didn't have any practice. So I kicked the foot that was planted, and he starts crying. Now, we were little guys, but I kicked it pretty hard. So he starts crying. I messed up the prank. It was when I was supposed to laugh, and now he's crying. I'm like, oh, no. The teacher comes around the corner, and everybody's like, Levi just kicked Christian. So I bolt. I'm gone. I run down the hall, out of the building. I run across campus. 
I run into the auditorium. I run behind the play that we had set up on the auditorium. We had a scene set up for a play. I run behind the scene. I thought, whew, I'm safe. Way she'll find me here. And it was about three minutes later. She peeks her head around there and says, Levi. I was caught. Man, I thought if I could just get out building, I would be safe. I would be, I would be able to escape the wrath of my teacher. Well, that was my first ISS, my first in-school suspension. The next day, I sat there and thought about what I did. You know, I thought I could get away just by avoiding it, by letting it not be in front of me, by distracting myself with something else, by getting to another place. God reminds us here that, friend, and he's speaking to Nineveh, Nineveh, there's nothing you can do that will help you escape my judgment. It's coming. It's coming. There's nothing. This really should motivate the Christian, though. This should, this should build up the Christian to say, you know what, this reality that a sinner that is lost, that is ex- going to experience the wrath of God, should be a motivator for me to say, hey, I'm going to get out, and I'm going to share the message, and I'm going to tell, because if I don't share this message, if God doesn't use me in this certain capacity, then I could be the last resource that somebody sees or hears on their way to hell. And listen, there is no escape. There is no other way around. There is no salvation outside of God. There's none. And God uses people like you and me. You say, wow, this message really is kind of a bummer. <laughs> there is no escape from God's judgment. We just talked about how judge doesn't overlook sin. Well, let me remind you this. In this point right here, that there's no escape from God's judgment. Let me remind you that there was a person that took your judgment, and he was in a garden, And he was praying to his father and said, Father, if there's any way, if there's any way to get around this, if there's any way where where I don't have to take the world, if there's any way where I don't have to drink this cup, if there's any way where I don't have to be separated from you for forever, God, if there's any way, then let, let me escape this. And the reply from his father says this, basically, If you're going to pay for the sins of the world, Jesus, then you have no escape. And he took that cup, and he took the sins of you and me, the weight of it. Every sin of every single person, he died and paid for on the cross. All the sin, all the guilt, all the the fear that you feel when you sin, everything was placed on Jesus, and he didn't escape it for you. But that's only if you trust him. If you put your faith in him. Can I tell you this? That if you don't, then there is no escape. And that judgment is coming for you. Just like there was no escape for Jesus, there will be no escape for you. So why not put your faith in him? Who has already taken all of the judgment. Who has already gone through that. There is no escape. God will perform judgment. And that judgment, listen, will be carried out. Number one, a good judge, a righteous judge, will never overlook sin. Number two, there is no escape from God's judgment. Nineveh is really having it laid down here. But I want to see one small glimmer of hope today. In this book, three chapters long of just judgment and devastation, 
death and destruction, there is a very small glimmer of hope, and I want to look at that today. Number three, payday is coming someday, but safety is only found in God's protection. Look at verse number seven with me, if you would. Verse number seven says this, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. God is painting this picture of of judgment and destruction for Nineveh and the Assyrians because of their sin, because of their brutality, because of their rejection to him. But yet at the same time, he looks and swings his head away from the Assyrians and he swings it back to Judah and says, hey, listen, this judgment is coming to them, but I know those who trust in me. But I am a good Lord. But I am a stronghold to the ones who... Listen, friend, there is safety from judgment, but it is only found in Jesus Christ. Only found in the protection that's provided by God. Can I tell you this? There is no protection. There is no safety outside of God. There's nothing you can do. There's no deed. There's no act. There's no, there's no penance you can perform. There's no, there's no church you can attend enough. There's no Bible that you could read enough. There's no prayer that you could say enough. But God says, I know, listen, those who, here's the key, trust in me. God has already paid the payment for your sins, and he will bring you into his own. He will be that stronghold if you trust in him. There's amazing, amazing truth that we see in this passage, that there is no salvation outside of God. And Nineveh, Nineveh found that protection. That's what, that's what blows my mind is that at one point Nineveh accepted that. He said, hey, we realize our sin. We realize that this is a good, holy, just God and he has to bring judgment, but we will trust in him again. We will repent. We will turn back. We won't oppress. We won't, we won't do that. They did that. God says, okay, I will relent from my judgment. They experienced that, but there was a turning back. Can I tell you this? God wants to relent the judgment that is coming to you. Friend, if you've not trusted in Christ, there is a payday someday, that eternal payday that's coming, that if you do not turn to Christ, trust in him, that, that judgment that God has on you, it's already determined. He can pull that up you trust in him. That's exactly what this verse says in uh, number, number seven says. If you look at chapter number 1, verse 15, I'll read it for you. It says this. It says, Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. The same God, the same God proclaim judgment on you is the exact same judge that can proclaim peace on you. The same judge that says, because you've sinned, you, here's what you get, your reward your judgment, your eternal damnation, that same judgment, because you've trusted in me, because you've trusted in the payment of Jesus Christ, because you have said him and him alone, now I can declare not judgment, but I can declare peace on you. Peace from sin, peace from eternal judgment. This is an amazing verse. This small glimmer of hope. I love it. I love it. You may be thinking to yourself, If God is a judge that can never overlook sin, 
If God is a judge that you can't escape his judgment, then how can I find peace and safety? Well, friend, I've been, I've been hinting at it all morning long. You can find peace and safety because of a, a man named Jesus Christ. He came, he was God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins that would send you to hell. He paid the price. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And the only requirements for you to accept that safety is to trust in him. That's the wonderful news about this book. 2003, this year, marks the 250th anniversary of a certain Christian song. The song was introduced to a congregation for the very first time 250 years ago on January 1st. You may know it. It goes like this. Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. This hymn was penned by a man named John Newton. John Newton lived a life of sin. He did. He was a slave trader who would tra transport slaves on a ship. And one night, in the middle of a transport, John ran into a storm. And in this storm, John feared for his life. And so in the middle of the night, John runs to the scriptures. His mom had tried to teach him the scriptures as he was younger. He runs back to the scriptures, and he finds the truth. That there is safety in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone. That night, John was saved from the storm. He made it through. But not only was he saved from the storm, his soul was saved from eternal judgment because he trusted in Christ. He said, although I've sinned, although I don't deserve it, there was amazing grace that saved me. Although I never, never once earned it, there was amazing grace that saved me. Although I am a wretch, there's amazing grace that saved me. That was the story of John Newton. And listen, that can be the story of you today. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter the sins that you've committed. It doesn't matter how bad you feel. It doesn't matter whether you feel like you can be redeemed or not. None of that matters. What matters is where you put your trust. Jesus said, if you trust in me, I will save you. That's the promise. That's a promise. The key to this salvation is in the verse we just read. He knows those who trust in him. And so let me ask you this this morning. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you trusted in him and him alone? Christian, let me ask you this. There is only one hope from this judgment for others. And that is the truth that we're talking about today. So how compelled are you to take that truth to people who whose sins won't be overlooked, to people whose sins will have a, a sure judgment. And there is a hope. How compelled are you to share this great news? God will bring judgment, but God also makes a way. Nineveh, because they turned from God, they rejected him, and their judgment was
But that same judgment doesn't have to be on you. There is an escape for those that trust in him. Let's all bow our eyes here this morning. Out and eyes closed. I'm going to ask a few questions here. I'm going to have a pianist come in just a moment. I'm going to ask you a few questions here about the message that we heard today. And I want you to, to ask those questions to yourself and respond, not to me, but respond to the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this first. Have you been God in a different light than the judge that he is? Have you been thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe God will overlook some of this sin and maybe I can kind of get away with it. It's not true. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know what, maybe, maybe there's a chance that I could escape this if I just maybe do this thing or act this way. Friend, there is no escape. Maybe you're sitting here today saying, you know what, I am bound for an eternal judgment in a place called hell. But I want that safety that God offers. I want that protection. You can have it today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you this question. If you have never asked Jesus to come into your heart, if you've never found that protection, if you find yourself today saying, I am headed for that judgment, but man, I want to be saved. If that's you this morning, would you do me a favor? Would you simply just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Raise your hand and say, you know what, I need that. I need that. With heads bowed and eyes closed, you can pray this simple prayer in your heart. A simple prayer does not save you because I gave it to you. The trust in the Lord, as we learned today, is what saves you. But if you'd like to structure your prayer after this, you can say something like, God, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize that I deserve eternal judgment. But I also find peace and no save me. Right now, I trust in you and you alone. From my sin, be my savior and help me never to be ashamed of you you prayed that prayer this morning, friend, I want to be the first to congratulate you to the family of God. Trusting in him provides that safety. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to invite you to an altar. Maybe this morning you say, a wrong view of God. You know, I've, I've not been thankful for the, that Jesus took in paying for my sins. The altar is open. May the Lord spoke to you in one of those manners, maybe a different manner. The altar is open. You can come. Somebody can pray with you, or you can pray by yourself. Let's all stand to our feet. We'll have just a few minutes of prayer time. If the Lord spoke, feel free to come.